out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's the turn of the guitarist, singer and musician. It is Jerome Alexander, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. One time member of the band The Dead Cuts, but is now in various combos, including the Sex Gang Children, also Black Bordello, and um, yes, many other incredible projects. So after several minutes of casual chats, which gets edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jerome, it's over to you. Well, yeah, actually, Bowie was one of them. Diamond Dogs album. I remember being 17 years old, putting that on. And actually, this is kind of this kind of ties in because my cousin, Jeff McCormack, went to school with David Bowie. And Famous. yeah, yeah, he, he, he went to school with him and he toured with him. He's, there's a few books out that he did. Uh, yeah, for about a thousand on the set of The Man Who Fell to Earth. and uh, But I, when I grew up as a kid, I grew up above Underhill Studios where he rehearsed regularly. So he was downstairs and I was upstairs and I'd, you know, I'd hear them rehearsing often. And um, it's allegedly where he wrote uh, Ziggy Stardust. Right. So, it, it could have been true. Yeah, because I know with Jeff, yeah. he's got one of those books out on a publishing label or a publisher, which I think... Was, there was a limited edition. It was only about a thousand, but they all cost about five hundred to a thousand pound if you wanted it signed, didn't you? So um, his right. trip to the Far East or something. I remember seeing it and thinking, okay, perhaps, perhaps if it ever comes out paperback <laughs> for thirty pounds. So Jeff was your sort of, uh, did you say uncle? A cousin. He's like a second cousin. And, uh, but Jeff. my stepfather Andy Clark actually played keyboards on Ashes to Ashes. Jesus so real like Bowie connection there in 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 terms of uh, but also Death in June was another when I heard them I was instantly transported to this other world you know of kind of uh, you know the runes and uh, sort of a primitive occult state and uh, I still get that listening to them now right. You know? Yes. yes, I'd say those two groups, like Bowie and Def and June, were were massively inspirational, and and I never ever get tired of listening to those artists' records ever. You know like how it is where sometimes you've got, you know, a whole bunch of records, and there's one or two you think, ah, you know, I'll just flog that or give that to a family member or whatever, you know. But uh, the those two have stood the test of time, as it were. Yes, well, Diamond Dogs has that epic song called We Are The Dead, which I always thought was rather, when I was younger, listening to that, feeling very sort of like, wow, that's so interesting and sort of macabre. I think when you're younger, macabre is quite appealing, isn't it, really? We, we play yeah. with those elements a bit 
sometimes a bit too much but yes it was all very good the Ouija board we wanted to sort of you know <laughs> but I sort of lightly went to the slightly new agey world of sort of ley lines and hippiedom instead and sort of got mm. into into those things rather than the dark arts of um the occult and Alistair Crowley which obviously was quite appealing in the 80s because of the goth scene so how old were you when you were sort of not how old what year was it when you were hit 16 then that formative moment 1994 right so you were sort yeah. of more of a indie pop kid from the 90s the brick pop period well, you see, the thing was, I was always at odds with every era I've ever lived in. <laughs> Even as a kid, when everyone was in the 80s, they were listening to like Michael Jackson. I was like listening to Elvis and doo-wop and 50s records. And then when the 90s came, I was listening to stuff like uh, early Christian death, you know, like Death and June, like I've mentioned before, and groups from the 80s. So... I, I did like Nirvana, but the trouble was, I'll never forget this, going to school, I had long hair, and all the guys with, like, you know, short back and sides would go, oh, you hippie, and they went out, and then two years later, Nirvana becomes extremely popular, and they're all wearing the Nirvana tops, and they've grown their hair out, and I thought, well, sod this, you know, if you're, <laughs> if, I, I don't want to be, I don't want you being part of our gang, and that's when I sort of cut my hair and kind of got more into the goth thing I suppose you know yes, I mean I've I... always had an eclectic taste but you know that I was I kind of felt at odds with the grunge thing when it suddenly became this massive you know I still love Sonic Youth and all that stuff but but yeah I felt it kind of got overtaken and lost its um its sort of primitive and guttural meaning you know yeah, no, that's that's completely. I think we had to just watch bits of Pearl Jam or Soul Coffin to realise that it was a bit of a disastrous scene, really, because it was such a cliche. The image, wasn't it? You know, with the shorts, mm. the the long sort of hair, doing the head banging with the Jack Daniels, singing songs about your stepfather and leaving home in small town America. <laughs> it was just like it was quite hard work after the first. I don't know, you know, I've, I don't know. I mean, I didn't mind the second Nirvana, you know, Nevermind album, but I really liked Bleach. I thought that was a classic. I thought it was really exciting. And it's like, wow, this is brilliant. And I went to see them. They were supporting Tad at the Norwich Arts Centre. And I thought, this is fantastic. And then it became, it, you know, it was one of those bands that just became too popular, which felt a bit uncomfortable. See, in the 80s, I loved the Smiths. And when they first started, everyone hated them. And it felt so comfortable. <laughs> Because <laughs> like, Steve Wright in the afternoon, just, you know, just compare them, Mike Reed, you know, Simon Bates, all those classic Radio 1 DJs, those old men who just never thought their time had gone. You know, they really hated them and people kept saying, oh, Morrissey can't sing, oh, it's all depressing. So it kind of made it nicer. But now, every, you know, everyone, well, yeah, the Smiths, liking the Smiths is a bit tricky for obvious reasons now, isn't it, really? Thank well, you. you know what? I mean, Johnny Marr's guitar... I mean, I'm still completely amazed how he conjures up those sounds. I mean, you can hear Motown in there, but then you can hear a sort of ethereal thing going on. And I, I think that's what drew me to the Smiths more than Morrissey, if I'm honest with you. Um, and sort of, it's weird, isn't it? People now call Morrissey a fascist, which is just baffling to me because you know uh, I have to be honest I don't read a lot of the articles and I haven't 
heard a lot of the things he said of late, but um, Leiden's another one who seems to be getting that as well. Yes. Well, I think they, I don't know, both people seem to make quite provocative um, comments, which, yeah, it was, um, yes, they, they, they haven't, they're slightly spoiled or soiled their kind of street cred. I don't know. I think they get a bit confused of what they stand for and then they sort of end up sort of siding with almost the far right. And you think, well, it's provocative, but I'm not sure if that's a good provocative thing or not. I'm not saying Morrissey did, but, you know, I know I th- Lydon did. And I know Morrissey talked about Britain first saying, you know, let's vote for them because they're great. And it's like, um, I've just watched an interview oh, with right. them. And it was a little <laughs> it was a little bit like, okay, I've let you, you know, I stick to being the vegetarian and, you know, meat is murder. That's brilliant. And I used to love watching his early interviews. He was fantastic. But yeah, I mean, it's fine. You know, I still have a, a a nice, you know, a soft spot for him as I do occasionally play Gary Glitter records. And, you know, and I was listening yeah. to some people talking about a book they just republished, I don't know, last night a DJ saved my life. And they said, well, when we did the first edition, there was a big section on Jimmy Savile because he was a really influential DJ doing the reprint. They've sort of they haven't taken him out, but, you know, they've kind of toned it down a bit, but they couldn't say, no, he's not important to the world of DJs because he was really important. So, you know, and it's a bit like glam rock, doing a book on glam rock and not mentioning Gary Glitter. It's like it, it takes away from the, well, you can't, I know he's terrible, but, you know, makes great songs. And most artists yeah. through the history of time, like, oh, yes, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't want to sort of give them your house keys and, you know, let them look after your pets or hang out with your mum so you know <laughs> well like for example the beach boys did um a cover of a charles manson song yes charlie and, we loved him you know like manson may have been a criminal and all the other stuff but he was a great songwriter you know he has written some really great songs so you know i think this is a trouble these days is people tend to you know just look at um people in in terms of oh they're bad they're evil or this and so they can't possibly have um an artistic flair you know and uh i think that's where we're we're going wrong um in society in general you know because everybody lumps um certain ideas like that into one thing so you know oh if you're an evil person you can't possibly have an artistic mind and i think if you look at the history <laughs> of uh, the last, you know, God knows how many years, you can see that's not true, you know. Yes, I know. I mean, uh, everyone's got a bit of a tricky past. I mean, there was a great story from Neil. I remember Neil Young talking about Charles Manson and because he wanted to be a singer-songwriter. And, he, you know, he's quite surprised when you hear his music. And then he kept getting rejected. And I remember Neil Young in a very deadbeat sort of way just said, yeah, Charlie took rejection really badly. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. such an understatement oh i love those stories about the you know the ranch and you know in california and, and sort of various people and certain yeah there's there's those adam curtis documentaries about yeah sort of some extreme american communities that sort of went a bit too far but you know for us sitting on the sidelines it's kind of makes an interesting story and yeah charles manson's singer yeah you can listen to them on spotify and i know guns and roses also covered a version of them i mean they were just all right they weren't that amazing songs but they're they're fine charlie gave it a good go so um i think the swastika was just a bit too much though on the <laughs> forehead but a he, person i 
I recorded with recently called Nicholas Shrek. Um, it's just done a book on Charles Manson. Well, hasn't just done one. It's he's uh he did one back in '89 called the Manson File, and he's updated it and called it um Manson Myth of an Outlaw Shaman. And um he knew Manson from like for like 30 years, but he also introduced uh interviewed people like Gene Katowski, who was Polanski's um Polanski's producer right and they basically said in a nutshell that the Tate murders weren't some mad helter-skelter theory but actually it was just a drug deal that went horribly wrong and what's great about um working with someone like Nicholas is you know I've been reading his books and listen watching his films since a young age and I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of people that I listened to from a young age who who may have sort of written about controversial topics as it were and um suddenly now I'm I'm in the studio working with these people it's very strange how <laughs> stuff like that happens you know yes it, it yes on that subject it was quite interesting because I've done a few interviews with musicians from that period in the 60s in that area and they did say just general, I mean, this is, I suppose it's them talking. They said that the vibe suddenly did start to turn really dark and you suddenly found there was kind of a, an energy on the streets that you just thought, God, something, something's kind of going on here. And it's it's quite spooky. You have to suddenly sort of up your game. I think because the 60s was interesting because it sort of went from 63 with, you know, the beginning with the Beatles, and then the sort of summer of love, and then suddenly all, you know, starts getting incredibly dark so quickly. And then you had all the deaths of people like Brian Jones and Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison yeah. and, and Janis Joplin and Altamont just to yeah. sort of cap it off. And I think all those people who had slightly been through it were just absolutely shattered. So that was why the glam period was quite interesting that it must have just hit the 60s hippies because they were so different you know and David Bowie must have just looked like what the hell's this so you can imagine why a lot of those artists just sort of dropped off the scene during the 70s and lost their way as most yeah. people do when there's another kind of scene that comes along after five years but it's in yeah it's kind of it's fascinating and I mean the Manson murders just makes it kind of also quite a fascinating chapter as well on the west coast i know they've just i mean and some of them are still in prison aren't they some of the the family still yeah. still there being being them i often wondered you know what did, what did charlie I mean, he's dead now but what did charlie used to do all day you know that's what we wanted to know what, how did he spend his day <laughs> a day in the life of charlie manson in prison i don't know he, he could wrap it on but look so what what were your what yeah so what was your parents like and your family did you come from a musical family apart from your great uncle my, jeff your cousin my, jeff my father was a drummer called jimmy copley um who passed in 2017 and he played with people like Jeff Beck um Killing Joke Tears for Fears but we didn't actually meet till I was 27 he sort of buggered off as it were <laughs> <laughs> and left me and my mother you know um and Andy Clark who I mentioned earlier uh, he was far more of a father to me, you know, I mean, uh, he took me to my first gigs and I'd see him performing with, you know, like he, one of the very first studio sessions I ever went to, I must have been about two years old when he was um, producing Betty Davis, uh, who was Miles Davis's wife at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then, you know, 
he would take me to people like Pete Perry of the Only One's House. And uh, I got a really good education from him. You know, he, he would show me how to write songs. And um, yeah, it, with me and my mum are extremely close too, you know. With, yes, I would imagine. Uh, you know, she she used to also go to all these parties and she met people like Hendrix and Pink Floyd. And I always tell her she should put a book out of her own. You know, she danced with Christopher Lee at a party. You know, it's just like, mom, get your, get your book out there, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. So, so did you have a, I mean, because Slash, who, um, he was a young person who was growing up, didn't he? And I remember hearing David Bowie came and babysat for him. I, something like that wasn't there there was these kind of was she a mm. drug dealer I can't remember now but people used to hang out at the house and he sort of mentions these kind of like rock stars all just appearing I can't quite remember what the relationship with David Bowie and Slash's mother but she seemed to be a person around town did you sort of have quite an interest in childhood then meeting all these musicians and um well one night Iggy Pop did come into my room and read me a bedtime story yeah, that's quite cool, isn't it? Really? <laughs> Which was, yeah, that that was pretty cool. Because he's got um, such a great voice. Yeah, exactly. He should do, like... Uh, Children tell you. Exactly, yeah. But you know how it is when you're a kid, you've got, like, three or four books and you just read them over and over, you know? Yes. And that's what I used to do. So, uh, you know, there was this book I'd read a billion times and he picked it up and he just... He looked at it casually. I remember this and he put it down and he just made his own version up. And I remember it got slightly risque. <laughs> you know, I think a few pimps were introduced in there and, you know, it was very sort of Detroit street. But it yes, was uh, he did like it was his... a really entertaining moment. I wish I'd what? had the tape player and recorded the damn thing, you know. I know, dear old, dear old, <laughs> dear old James. He's such a star, isn't he? So what happens when you hit 16? Did you leave school at this stage? Because you said it was 1994, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't stand school, to be honest with you. And and you know, going into school at that time with full-on makeup and that, every day I was getting into a fight <laughs> or some some other mischief. And um Actually, I was far more interested in going to like nightclubs at that time, like the Slime Light, which you must have heard of, which was like the golf club at, at that time. And um, I sort of started playing with bands, um, one in particular, which toured quite extensively. And um, I was sort of in this group called Automator, and that's when I met Mark. Right. And... Um, Mark actually came to see our band, the band Automator at the time, and um, we instantly bonded. I mean, immediately we we got on like a pair of long lost brothers, you know, and um, I didn't know that night when he came to see us that he was Mark of the Census Things, because this is the amazing thing about Mark, you know, he never bragged that he was a musician. Um, but you could tell he had something about him, you know, even if you didn't know that he was in the census things or whatever. And um, then, of course, he, years later, we got together and, and put Dead Cuts together. Yes. And, um, yeah. Uh, I remember that night, actually, after we first met going home and my girlfriend at the time, Heidi, said to me, you do know that's Mark Kedd of the census things, don't you? And I went, because he looked so different. 
he, you know, he had like short hair, kind of looked like a sort of, uh, you know, like Johnny Funders look in uh, the Heartbreakers. Yeah. He looked like that. And uh, at the time he was running a club called Bring Your Own Poison, which was down at the Riven Factory. It was a legendary club and it's where the Libertines would play. And, you know, a lot of the bands that, like the Kaiser Chiefs and all these other bands from that era would go and play. It's and, bizarre. Um, I think I got a compilation called of that title. Did they put a compilation? I have to go. And that's right. It. And there's a there's a uh, one of the songs is is Mark's playing on there with his band The Lambs, I think. Right. And then there's Pete Perrett's also on there playing with the Libertines. Yeah. Doing another girl, another planet. Yeah. So it was great. That? Yes. Do you remember the film performance? Yes, dear old Mick. Well, that's that's what I thought Riven Factory was kind of like. Bring your own poison that night. You know, you had the sort of crims and the wide boys, but you also had the really interesting, you know, fae kind of models and uh, musicians. And everyone got along. And it was a really, I think it was one of the last great clubs, that and Alan McGee's Notting Hill Arts Club. I mean, they were brilliant nights to go to. and. Um, Mark then put on a group that I was in at the time called the Scuzzies that I was sort of in for a brief period. And then, um, yeah, Dead Cuts came about and it and it sort of, it happened really fast. And I have to be honest, I was apprehensive at first because I'd known Mark, you know, had struggled, you know, and I'd also struggled with, you know, my health and, um, but once we got in the room and we played together, I mean, it was electric, you know. Yes. I knew from that second that things would happen. And they happened very quickly. You know, within several months, we were going to Paris to play two shows and, and every gig we did was sold out. And it was just exceptional. It, it yes. really was, yeah. So tell us a bit more, because we love Alan McGee. Um, Notting Hill Arts <laughs> Club. I've never come across, I've come across the living room and he's in you know, various adventures in the 80s and then you know he's obviously his um creation in the 90s but what was this club like god i should know this shouldn't i he's gonna um he's gonna i can't say i remember too much <laughs> <laughs> what i do remember was uh we we got to play there one night and um i think i, I must have been about in my early 20s and i was a bit snobbish you know if 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 someone came from a sort of wealthy background, I kind of was a bit, you know, being a working class kid, I was like, I'd sort of look down on them a bit. And I, I, I'm not like that anymore now. But, you know, you know what it's like when you're younger. You get, yeah, you we know, hate get... everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and Especially people that. with money. God, we hate them <laughs> so much. <laughs> God, there's, there's no, there's no kind of grey area on that one, is there? What was... <laughs> Oh, I can't remember a name. The, the Peaches Geldof, that was it. So Peaches Geldof was supporting our band. And I remember she was playing that night. And, you know, I mean, it was just like a continu continual kind of load of people from all these different bands, you know. So you can meet anyone from the Libertines up to... Uh, Harmar superstar, the yeah, yeah, yeahs. And this was the thing that I think is missing now, particularly from the music scene, is if you 
if you were just starting out or whatever and you needed to go and meet the right journalists and you needed to meet the right people, that was the place to go and do it. Those two places, Rim Factory and Alan McGee's Notting Hill Arts Club. And um, there is no sort of den of iniquity now yeah. that exists. So it's just a shame. Because you know? in the 80s, there was the Batcave, but there was another club, which I uh, have to confess, I didn't, didn't know much about, called Alice in Wonderland. And it was oh, the guy nice. from Doctor and the Medics, um, was the kind of the main DJ, but it sounded like this was the place all the kind of, I wouldn't say freaks, but everybody who was really wanting to dress up, have a really good time. And just anybody from Lemmy to, you know, the dam to just, you know, it just was a very inclusive club and every night was a bit special. And they would do these kind of away away days to different places where they'd book a coach and go somewhere random like Yarmouth and book a club and they'd all have these kind of weekend adventures and obviously you know the highs were high and then it all crashes to an end and burns but you know when it was happening you know everybody just had a great groove I think everything has a sort of a bit of a five-year narrative sometimes I know I say before it sort of eats itself yeah before before things start to slightly get a bit messy I mean with the band you know because you were you mentioned the scuzzies did that Mm. go did that go for long well it it sort of was on and off because when I first met Peter Doherty um I think he, at that point he was auditioning just about everybody for baby shambles and it was sort of the period where the libertines are coming to an end and um i think me and mark both actually auditioned at one point for them. and mark had co-written with peter um can't stand me now yes so there was all this going on and 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 the thing was i kind of realized that for whatever reason it wasn't going to work out but but peter said to me look put a band together and you can come and support us anytime you like and so the Scuzzies did end up doing a track with Peter Doherty called On the Corner, which was based on when he'd come and visit me in Deptford a lot, uh, when we were hanging out at Andy Clark's house and uh, where I was living. in. And it was just, um, it was a great time, actually, because I was living with Nina Antonia, who wrote In Cold Blood, you know, the Johnny Funders biography. Oh, yeah. So she was sort of co-managing us and... You know, we had a few indie deals and that, but at that time, you know, when I met Mark, I just knew that I couldn't really carry on doing this. You know, that Dead Cuts just was everything I'd wanted to do, you know, sort of um, image-wise, sound-wise. And, you know, uh, I wanted to take my guitar playing to a sort of ethereal, sonic level which I hadn't really done previously before. Um, I mean, the great thing of writing with Mark was, you know, he would say, okay, we've written one great song today, but we've got to write four. So he'd turn up (laughs) really early in the morning at um, the place I was living with in Barnes with Nina Antonia, and we'd sit and we'd write from the morning right up to the evening, you know, and... um, I learned a lot from him, you know, uh, and this is the thing about Dead Cuts as well. I think a lot of people assumed there was a, a real doom and gloom thing about that band. And I, I hasten to add that, yeah, you know, that, you know, on, on a spiritual level, I guess people would sometimes be like, like, Oof, you know, the occult and all that kind of stuff. And we did sort of play 
with forces that you know we were a bit naive to and that i do think bit us and we'd had like the odd fans who bring us stuff like i think <laughs> there was this one who brought me a great book on you know the occultist austin osman spare no i've never come across this one so he's from south london and he was a painter and but so i was really really thrilled that they brought me this rare book but this fan also at the bottom of the bag and bought me some tarot cards soaked in her menstrual blood yes it's always <laughs> so i'm kind of like yeah you know thanks uh keep the cards you know uh <laughs> but at the same time you know there was stuff like when mark and i go to france we went to um do two nights of pete docky out there and i had to be smuggled in because i didn't have a passport so literally i hid under um in in the vehicle right at the back and we got in fine believe it or not and on the way back we got a tug and this guy came in who looked a bit like inspector cluzo with a <laughs> torch shining it in my face and god knows how he didn't see me right um but yeah he, he just then waved us on but you know like it was fun because you know mark and i were running around pere lachey and we went into this crypt we pulled this gate and we were like any sort of like family walk past we go you know like, really, like <laughs> jump out at them and stuff being just children you know because that's how we were and and then of course we went to open the crypt door and realized we'd locked ourselves <laughs> in and stuff and then Cass who has an exceptional uh humor you know he would have us in bits of hysterics all the way from the show all the way back home you know so I, I kind of I've always wanted to sort of let people know that yeah you know there was levels of darkness to the band but we had great fun doing it you know yes well it, absolutely there's always those moments you wouldn't stay with a scene if it wasn't sort of had something it's often weird with friendships though you it's sometimes, you know, I don't know if you ever had them where you just think, actually, I kind of feel like we need to have some sort of divorce, you know, just on the friendship, you know. Yeah. And they're, and they're yeah. still going, no, I think we should still be friends. It's like, I'm not sure. It's kind of, I think I'm done. And it's like, oh, shit, they don't want to let me go. It's like, it is a bit creepy when that happens sometimes. I mean, obviously, yeah. with, did you, with, just on the musical level, how do you, how did you sort of develop yourself as a, as a guitarist? Because, because obviously things can get a little bit tricky, you know, just having a stable place to live and various kind of scenes and, and um, yes, things that happen. How did, how did you sort of develop yourself, you know, musically at this stage? I, I just listened to everything, <laughs> everything I could, and mainly was inspired by soundtracks like films by Herzog, Hammer Horror. Um, I, I tried not to get into those noodly guitarists. Um, I really liked um, Kevin Shields, uh, Daniel Ash, uh, Johnny Funders. Uh, what's that guy from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs called? His, his name always escapes me. Nick Zinner. Right. Really, really liked his playing. Um, I, I tended to go towards the guitarists that were doing things that were um, more ethereal or space-like. Like, you know, like when Jimmy Page would suddenly have a guitar going backwards. Um, for instance, 
when I first heard Hendrix, I wasn't impressed by the guitar burning and all that shit. I was interested how he got these weird sort of sounds um, where out of nowhere, a string would suddenly bend and you'd think, well, how on earth has he done that? And to this day, I still think, well, how has he done that? And I've, I always found Hendrix more interesting on um, vinyl than I did watching him on video, you know. Right. I just think he, he had a further esoteric landscape, which I think gets ignored a lot um, when when he's written about, which is unfortunate, you know, because they just sort of see him as this sort of guitar god, which is, you know, no problem. If you want to be remembered as a guitar god, that's great. But I think there, there was far more to him than that, you know. There's a fantastic little clip of him playing 12, a 12 string acoustic guitar. And it's just the kind of sweetest thing ever. I say sweet because he starts playing and he messes up. And he goes, oh, look, look, just, just, oh, cool. yeah. I'll just, I'll just yeah. do this again. And, you know, it's so stunning, you know, the way he does it. But, yeah, I, I also find those kind of outer sonic moments quite amazing. But I also, also find with Hendrix, unlike a lot of the guitarists in the 80s and 90s, the heavy metal guys who were so fast on the fret, was that actually there was a kind of a rhythm to it, which I also found with the Smiths. Bizarrely, yeah, you know, there was yeah. a sort of you could move to it kind of physically or at least sway to it in a slightly, you know, sort of self-conscious person trying to dance at a party. But, you know, Hendrix had a slight groove to it, which I quite enjoyed rather than just sitting there going, oh, that's very clever, Jimmy. I must I must admire you <laughs> even more. So, it was, yeah, he did have a sonic kind of quality, which was which was stunning. And the other guitarist that everyone always talks about is the guy from Magazine and uh, Susan the Banshees. And then oh, John McGeoch. John McGeoch from, you know, Public he Image. He is my number one. Him and Roland S. Howard. Actually, there's so the John McGeoch. What I love about him is he sort of almost turns his guitar into a keyboard. And I remember being 14 and hearing a kiss in the dream house and also uh Juju. And uh yeah, his playing was stratospheric, you know, and again, he was taking it to a completely different level. I remember hearing an interview where Susie said he had this thing called a gizmotron, which he attached um, sort of near where the strings were, and he could press these buttons and it, these like wheels would hit the strings. Right. So you could get a rhythm that you couldn't necessarily get if you were strumming the strings. And I actually ordered one of those. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't had it fitted yet, but I, I remember hearing that and thinking, yeah, that's what I want to do next. Uh, yes. Try and imitate that McGeeock Gizmotron thing. <laughs> there's a new good, there's a really good book that's just come out called The Light That Pours Through Me, which is um, just published. So, um, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting insight to the light, the guy's life. So um, check it out. Oh, I'd love to read that. Um, yeah. I mean, he's, again, I think it's quite sad because he's, sort of been ignored in the pantheon of guitarists and i think that's a real shame because, yeah but i think know, i think slowly people and i think this book coming out is going to sort of readdress that sort of issue because you know he i suppose he gave up music after public image in a way and got a date a job as a care worker and um yes then that battled his demons which was a bit sad and yeah, mm. it was epilepsy, epileptic fit, I think, that sort of finished him off. So um... That's right. Yeah, it's, that's really sad. And uh, he had a massive inspiration on Dead Cuts. I mean, you can hear that 
on on the two albums you know the the that we we made and and actually the last one which hasn't been released yet reveal the love which was i think we we were always listening to mcgeoch as as our main inspiration for uh whenever we were writing albums yes Um, well yes frightened and shot by both sides are fantastic songs really oh absolutely absolutely so so when dead cuts formed who were the was it with mark mccarthy yes so he was in a in one of those kind of travelly crusty bands wasn't he god that's such a sweeping statement the radical dance faction that's right he was in them and he was in the wonder stuff as well and right um, yeah, yeah. That so that was the original lineup. Was we we had a drummer called Joni, and um, uh, and then we had Mark McCarthy on bass, and then later on Joni left, and we had Trevor, who was in. Do you remember Miranda Sex Garden? Yes, good old. Um, was that one of those people who went on to form a band called the Medieval Babes? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. That's right. For a start. And of um, and also so. I don't know if you've seen the Dead Cuts Some and the Witches video, but in that video, it was shot in Trevor Trevor's house. And um, it, it was very much sort of a Kenneth Anger, Hammer Horror type <laughs> affair, you know, uh, very occult based. And, and it was a track we'd done with, Some and the Witches was a track we'd done with oh, uh, Jake from Alabama Free also known as Reverend Wayne Love. And uh, we shot that all at Trevor's house, which was this beautiful um, warehouse in, in the middle of uh, Haggerston. And, and it looks, you know, it's full of taxidermy. And I remember when we arrived there, he said, oh, hi guys, this is our house. This is where you can rehearse. And uh, we're like, well, this is great. And this is where you can shoot your video. <laughs> we're like, fantastic. You've got the job then. Oh, <laughs> we recorded our first album there as well, um, Dark is a Night. So, so who, who, who produced the album? Harvey Birrell, right. who had obviously worked with Census Things and Buzzcocks. And, um, and he was brilliant. But it was quite funny. Him and Mark would sometimes, like, I always remember when Harvey would set the amps up with the mics and everything to exact you know, this exact uh, precise sound he wanted. And just as he was about to hit record, Mark would run in and suddenly ram up the game on there. And they would often struggle sometimes in, in the studio, you know. But, but they were brilliant and they really worked well together. And yes. That was really quite an experience. And how did you cope when there was kind of a change of members of the band? Was that quite tricky? I was really happy because I was a big fan of... Well, I was a fan of Census Things, but I was also a fan of Gorillaz. And, and you know, when Cass joined, I was a bit of a fanboy. I can't deny it. You know, I was kind of like, wow, you know, we've got Cass Brown, Cass Brown on drums, you know, because I, I really love the way he plays drums. And, um, and then we did a hit on all sixes. And unfortunately, Mark started to get ill towards the end of hit on all sixes. And... Um, it was a real shame because I think a lot of people assumed it was drugs, but Mark had uh, COPD, which is a lung condition. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, and it, it was actually really quite unfortunate because 
I think a lot of the time people made misjudgments there, you know, and uh, yeah. Uh, so what actually, what is this? You know, I've come across asthma and emphysemia, but what is COPD? Well, I mean, people get it who, I mean, anyone can get it. Who's, it's basically if you smoke cigarettes, you know, you can get it. Um, it, it doesn't have to be drugs. You know, it can, um, I don't know enough about it. But I, I do know when um, that's what the coroner told us when, you know, Mark passed. Yeah. Yes. So after you hit the second album, hit all the sixes, yes. what then happened? Did, when did, did you sort of keep in the band all the time or were you playing with other people at this stage? Well, well, you see, so at this point, everything was going really well at that point. We'd just done um, a track with this group called Flatbridge Zombies, which are, uh, this huge hip hop group from Brooklyn that we're massive, massive fans of. And um, we'd done that track and that had been for the Black Panther animated series. And um, we'd collaborated with a lot of people that we love. We toured with a lot of the bands we liked. I think Cass mentioned to you Sebado being one of them. And, um, but you know, Mark was getting iller and iller and it was getting harder for him, you know, to, play shows um we started to write the third album which in my opinion is the best album and it still hasn't been released yet but it will get released um you know we there's negotiations with that right now um but yeah i remember actually during the writing of the last album lyrically i felt mark was this is actually quite difficult to say, but um, I sort of say to him, Mark, you know, that's a that's a bit kind of heavy, you know. You, but I think Mark knew that he didn't have much longer left. Mm. And I think he was conveying it in through the lyrics. I mean, certainly when the album gets released, I'm sure that won't be, you know, that won't go over people's heads, you know, that, that, that was, that's quiet. I don't know if I sent you the demos. Did I send yes, you the demos? Yes, you did. It did. They were quite, it's quite um, chilling really, aren't they? You know, it's a bit like the David Bowie, I suppose what I, I find a little bit difficult with the Black Star album, you know, for, mm. for various reasons, because um, you suddenly realise what those lyrics meant. And also I will confess just because I had this obsession with David Bowie and then he he passes away. Yeah. So in the autumn of 2015, I also got diagnosed with cancer, which I didn't quite know. I was having all the MRI scans and then just around that new year, David Bowie dies. And then suddenly I get go to see my the hospital, see the surgeon. He goes, by the way, this, this rather dark area around your kidney is um, cancer. And it's like, Oh my God, I didn't know that was oh. going to be the, the conversation we we're going to have. And he said, You better come in and have the operation, which was the 4th of March. So Bowie had just died. And suddenly I started hearing these lyrics on Black Star. And I was thinking, Oh my God, I can't, I just couldn't listen to it. It just, it would just completely do me in. So, you know, because suddenly it was like, Oh my God, he would have been going through all these MRI scans, all these kind of blood tests, yeah. endless hospital appointments, going down those corridors, sitting on the side there, being called into the office and being told news. And then you have your operation, you know. So I find some of those things quite hard just because of I my bet, own personal I experience. Bet. And then you wake up and then you wonder, 
is it going to come back? Is it not? You know, you know, it's, it's what happens in life. But because obviously that timing with Bowie was a bit strange for me. So obviously you, you know, with Mark and his lyric writer, knowing that he was probably when you're ill, you just know things aren't going well, don't you? And when you when it's quite deep rather than just a bit of hay fever, you realise, you know, probably the time is coming. And I did sort of watch some of those little clips many years ago of Mark kind of on in his bedroom and he you know I think he was yeah. quite ranting about things wasn't he I kind of I can't remember now but he was kind of he looked really poorly and just was yeah. was it poetry he was kind of firing out and it was like well yeah I mean it's, it's at the beginning of Dead Cuts he looked really really well and the trouble was by the time Dead Cuts had gotten their um gotten the attention of everyone that's unfortunate when you start to go downhill. So I think the assumption that a lot of people had was, oh, they always look like this and this, you know what I mean? But it actually wasn't the case. And I think he did feel very frustrated because, you know, he 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 wanted he knew and understood the medicinal quality of music. And, and it's something he taught me, you know, many times. Um when I'd be, you know, feeling unwell or whatever, he'd be just like, let's just play and we'll get through it. And um, and I think he he approached it in the same way, you know. Um, but yeah, he was getting iller. And I, it's odd that you bring up uh, Black Star because he, we did a cover of Lazarus. Right. And that's actually on the album. Yeah, yeah. And And he was very against doing covers, but one day he said to me, we're going to do this cover. And I don't know if Cass had mentioned this to you, but there was um, sh- literally a few weeks after Bowie died, we played, uh, Dead Cuts played um, a cancer research night. And we got up and we played Lazarus and V2 Schneider. Right. And and it was great because we were joined by um, uh, Andy McKay of Roxy Music. And uh, Charlotte Glasson, who plays with Nick Cave, and and she she also plays um, saxophone. And it was a very moving moment. And I remember when we were on the stage and we're playing it, and I'm looking at Mark, and he's singing it, and he's singing the words almost as if he's written these words, you know? And I kind of, in that moment, felt, because Mark would never talk about his illness. He never would. You know, he, he was very sort of staunch and defiant and we're going to do this and um, we're going to survive. We're going to get there. And also, I think he felt very angry at all the kind of accusations because the trouble was because he'd had a drug past, people always made that assumption. And right. I think this happened for several reasons. One. A certain sounds journalist written had written a review of Hitnal Sixes where they talked nothing but drugs throughout the whole thing, which unfortunately they took it at face value because if ever that was a subject, we always were very anti that. You know, we were very much like, do not get involved. You know, it was never a glorification type thing. And um, also, it didn't help when we were supposed to support uh, Ginger Wildheart. I don't know if you know, Mark was briefly in the Wildhearts for a 
about five minutes. No. And that ended pretty badly when he didn't turn up for their tour or whatever. Um, but basically, Ginger had invited us to do this tour. And um, we were sort of talking with our agent and we got to find out that we were going, we were expected to do this tour as main support for 50 pounds a night. So I rang up my <laughs> the booking agent. I said, you're kidding. We're not going to. And oh, yes, we were expected to share our backline too. I said, no way. Absolutely forget it. And I don't know what happened, but it didn't get back to Ginger Wildheart. And he wrote this scathing review of us saying, oh, typical, you know, uh, drug fiends not turning up, you know, to do a tour. And it was bullshit. It had nothing to do with that. It, you know, 50 pounds wouldn't have even covered our, our petrol to the next show. I mean, the sheer amount of disrespect there, you know. Um, so I think that was a trouble. People looked at his image and saw he was getting unwell and assumed that it was because of drugs, which, you know, just simply wasn't true. Yes, I know he had had a relapse a long time ago at the start of the group, but, you know, he he sorted that out, that sorted that out very quickly, yes. you know, and also he, he'd throw drug dealers out when they come backstage. Um, you know, he, he'd have security throw them out. So, yeah, it, it, it did kind of really bother me when we got tarred with that brush, you know. Well, it's, yeah, it is kind of tedious when people can't sort of let it go. What was it like when he, you know, the, the Senseless Things did a reunion? Did, was that, um, did you go to that particular evening? Oh, yeah. No, I played that night. I joined them for Hold It Down um, that night. So, yeah, it was amazing, actually. And I, I, when I saw them, I mean, they were just so on point. And I have to be honest, Mark wasn't well, but he managed to just, I mean, he was just incredible, you know, he, and energetically everything that the, the band sounded better than they ever had done, you know, and, and uh, I felt a bit of an imposter actually being on stage <laughs> when they asked me to go up, even though I was in a band with two of the members, you know, it, I did sort of, but, you know, Mark Mark was like, come on, come on, you've got to do it. And the odd thing about that was Hold It Down was the first Census Thing song I heard and saw on, do you remember the word? Yes. Channel 4. So it was really strange to be asked to do that particular song, you know. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. But after that, yeah, things sort of ground to a halt with dead cuts. You know, we were trying and to get things happening and and so we did a we one of our last dates we did was with killing joke and you from killing joke was like i really like what you're doing i'd like to produce your next record and uh so we went to conk studios which was the kinks studios down in um north london we start recording reveal the love and um I was really happy, you know, the songs, everything that that day we recorded like 14 songs in the day. You know, that, that's another great thing about Mark. You know, it was a workhorse. He really knew how to um, bring out the best in, in the musicians he worked with. And then for about a year and a half, he didn't answer the phone. 
And that was very difficult because you've got to bear in mind, it wasn't just the band thing. You know, we saw each other practically every day for 20 years. So yes. he, yeah. And so he went on, you know, he was going through his illness and he just didn't want to tell me. He didn't want to tell me how ill he was. And um, so I kind of thought well, one day he'll call me. Oddly enough, um, someone called me up and said, I've got some really sad news. Mark's passed away. And it was actually a mistaken identity. Jesus and Christ. I remember, so I rang Mark's phone and he picked up and I'm like, Mark, you're alive. You know, I was really happy to hear his voice. And we sort of reconnected and we spoke about finishing off the album and that. But I, I could hear a frailty in his voice and it, and it was quite sad. And um, at that point, I just, joined Sex Gang Children and was working on then their album Oligarch with them and yeah it, you know I remember I went to go and see him it was like a month before he passed away and that was uh, incredibly difficult because I just looked at him and he was saying yeah man you know we're going to tour, we're going to do this. There's um, all these labels that were interested in putting the album out, but I just, I just knew. I just yes. knew. And um, I, I left that night and I just burst into tears on the train home. I, I, I was absolutely gutted and he passed away, um, yeah, one month after that, which was very sad. Yes, it's never um, easy, is it? Actually, I know that. Um, I know we were seeing pictures of Lemmy. I don't know why I was going back Lemmy, but you know, suddenly he sort of slightly shrinks, doesn't he, and just looks such a little chap. And I guess Mark also looked had that frailty about him that you thought, God, that's you know, when anybody has certain illnesses, they just start to sort of it just becomes a bit more bone than anything else, which is. Ooh. When you're around someone as well all the time, you don't always notice their deterioration. But if you look at pictures of him at the very beginning of Dead Cuts, say from 2012 up to 2014, you know, he's quite healthy. He was always, you know, skinny, but, he, you know, he, he looks healthy. And then you can kind of see from 2015 onwards that, and, and it's odd because I didn't really notice it until one day we were on the tour, we were touring with Pete Doherty on his Eudaimonia tour. And I sort of looked at Mark and thought, okay, you don't look as healthy as, but it's funny, isn't it? You, you, when you're in the sort of, when you're around on that much, you don't notice that deterioration, you know, no, as not much as <clears throat> until you look back, you know, and it's always a bit uh, of a shocker, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, how much of the out? So, you, did you manage to record a, sort of the whole album with Mark and the band? Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's all there. It's all. It's all there. It's just a few, few little overdubs here and there that need doing, and um, and it will be ready. The artwork's been done, which is is beautiful, and um, Speedawax, which was always our label um, from the beginning, will release it. Um, I don't, we don't have a date yet, obviously because of COVID, everything is, you know, all releases are still very much behind. Um, yes. But I, I do know one thing when, when uh, 
Mark's fans hear that record, uh, I mean, I, I personally think it's one of the greatest things, you know, uh, we co-wrote together, without a shadow of a doubt. I Don't get me wrong, I love the first two albums, but with this, um, there's something extra special about this album. Yes. You know? So when um, did you record it? When was, when, when was the kind of studio time? 2019, and it was uh february the 15th because I, I my birthday is february the 16th so and yeah we just did it all in one day the, the writing process probably would have been from about 2017 to 2019 because we'd always write about and this is this may sound like an exaggeration but i promise you it's not um we'd write about something like 60 songs and then pick out the best ones and um i've actually got a hard drive with a, loads of unreleased deck cut stuff that I will release at some point, which, you know, is great. But yeah, so between that time we were um, writing and yeah, in 2019, February 15th, we went in and we recorded that and uh, everything, you know, everything was set. We were really excited. And I, I just think he, he just felt so unwell that, you know, he was always battling with himself and he, and he never really wanted to admit to me how ill he was, you know. Yes. Um, so I think it was a case of he didn't answer the phone for those months because he didn't want to say, look, I'm ill and, but I, I, I'll be all right and we'll carry on. I'll just, I'll recover. You know, he, I think at that point he wasn't really sure what he was going to do or what his next move was, you know, and it, it just was very, very sad. God, it's tough, you know? isn't it? It's really tough. Do you think when you get the album, when the album's coming out, do you think you'll do some kind of live dates with a few guest musicians to slightly promote it? It would be very hard to do because, but the only way I would be happy to do that is having a guest vocalist for each track because Mark, obviously is we all know is irreplaceable you know and i actually this is this is another terrible thing that happened. i've got certain people writing to me going lists like labels saying to me look you know use use this as a as as a as a platform to do the next dead cut so i said how fucking dare you you know like this is like my best friend and brother and you're you're sort of using it as a do you know what i mean i could not believe it um uh, yeah, so I was completely flabbergasted when that happened. And um, yeah, so I think the only way to, to do it would sort of be one night only, guest vocalists, friends of Mark's, you know. Um, and yeah, that's how, how we go about doing it. But to be honest with you, um, I, I feel that that would be the only right thing to do. And I certainly wouldn't ever consider carrying the band on without him. You know, it, it, it was essentially me and me and him, you know, we were the sole songwriters and, and I, I couldn't do it. I, I yes. just wouldn't be no. able to do it. It would feel, you'd feel so wrong. You'd regret it later, but yeah. yeah. So look, sex, sex, the sex gang children. How did this gig come along? Cause this is always an exciting moment, isn't it? I, yeah, I was put forward um, as, you know, a potential guitar player 
And um, I'd actually met Andy Sex Game way back in the 90s at a club called Kitten Club in Camden. Um, oddly enough, where Mark used to frequent a lot. And um, one of the first times I met him was there as well. Um, anyway, uh, cut long story short, they didn't even audition me. They just gave me the albums and I'd been dancing to their music as a 14, 15 year old goth. So <laughs> I knew all the music as it was. And um, we got in the rehearsal room and we were ready to do, I think we had an American and a European tour, then COVID struck. And all the plans, you know, just went south. Um, but however, um, we did manage to do uh, a show at Electroworks in December of last year. And we're going to play Castle Party in Poland in right. about a week and a half, which should be fun. <laughs> and um, yeah, we've got, we're also playing Rebellion Fest in August, uh, which, yeah. So that's that's kind of how that came about really, you know, and um, we've also, at some point, we're gonna perhaps work, start work on a, a new album. I'm also playing in a band called Black Bordello, which is kind of like a mixture between Susie and the Banshees and Billie Holiday. Yeah, I've been and listening to that. She's got an amazing vocal, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I I met her at a um, it's a there's a pub in South London called Skeans, which uh, you know, all the local sort of South London bands would hang out like uh, Fat White Family and Warm Douche and uh, you know meet raffle etc and uh i met her there and she was looking for a guitarist and uh at the time i wanted to do you know as far as i'm concerned you can never do enough in this day and age <laughs> musically so i was happy to uh join up with them and uh we yeah we recently uh did a show with uh, peter doherty in cambridge which was fantastic, the Cambridge Junction. Yes, I know it well. Wow. This is good. So when did this band start? Oh, they started a couple, about two years ago, I believe. My God, and is it a COVID so I'm, project? I'm quite a new, yeah, I'm quite a new addition to that. And um, I'm also doing a project with David Jay of Bauhaus. And uh, I can't mention who the singer is yet, although I'm sure a lot of people won't be surprised when they do find out who it is. <laughs> Um, it's someone I've previously worked with, and um, yeah, that's that's something I'm really looking forward to doing. doing Jeez, as well. crazy, dear old David. Yeah. Is he enjoying his time re reforming with Bauhaus? Oh, absolutely. They've um, they just played Cruel World Festival. I don't know if you saw the episode that was at the Pasadena Bowl where Depeche Mode played. Yeah, something like ninety thousand people or something. Yeah. Because I heard they played a gig in Greece and it, and they had problems with their sound, didn't they? Something didn't quite happen. Someone, some fans were saying, oh, God. And they apologised. I saw there was a post the next day apologising that they had major sound issues during that sort of gig. 
So um, that mm. was a bit unfortunate. But I did a few, I did an interview with David Jay. I think this was the time when Bauhaus were never going to reform. And I did one with right. Dave, Dave Haskins, who did the book. He brought a book out. And again, it was like, yes, the band will never. So it's always quite funny when suddenly you think, oh, they've reformed <laughs> and they've got dates. This is amazing. How does that work? So how does that work, actually? So they're going, look, we'll never play again. This is never going to happen. You know, hell will freeze over. And then it's like, oh, there's dates of Bauhaus reforming. So when I initially met him, he was just playing with Peter and it wasn't. So it was um, a 40 year retrospective of Bauhaus, I think. And I, we met at, I think it was, I think it was Brixton Academy. Me and my fiance went down there and um, then we sort of got talking about, you know, doing a soundscape record with, uh, the artist who cannot be named <laughs> yet. And um, yeah, and uh, negotiations obviously have taken a bit of time because, I mean, we're all very busy, you know, to get us all in one room is is going to be a hard thing to do. But we finally found some dates to nail that down and, and do. So he, so yeah, at that point, it was just him and Peter Murphy, um, a guitarist called Mark Gemini Fwaite that used to play with Tricky. Oh, yes, I've done an interview with Mark, yes. Yeah, he, he also did a remix of um, Death Mars Mussolini. That's track, right, yes. This new Sex Gang track uh, single. Um, but yes, and then Bauhaus did their reformation, and I went to go and see them at Alexandra Palace. And I, I mean, they were just amazing, you know, absolutely incredible. And I've got, in my heart, again, Bauhaus is another one of those bands that really, really meant something to me. I took my first acid trip to, um, <laughs> to Bauhaus's um, Shadow of Light uh, video retrospective. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like every video they did. Um, and uh, I advise most people not to do that <laughs> taking acid to Bauhaus late at night is not for everyone but I, I enjoyed it and uh had became a fan ever since so again to work with David who I've been a fan of since I was a teenager just like I was with Mark just like I was with Flatbush Zombies um Sex Gang Children I've been very lucky and I'm also doing an album, do you know Rose McDowell of Strawberry Switchblade? Oh, God, yes, Rose. Amazing. Yeah, yeah we, we, of course, COVID interrupted that one. <laughs> so we went out to record in a, a studio down in, in the sticks and we were there and we were coming up with ideas. And um, I also was a big fan of Rose's work with Death in June and Psychic TV. And um, and Boyd Rice, you know, I mean, every, I love everything she's done. And uh, we were in the middle of recording, and of course, Boris Johnson suddenly announces there's a lockdown. Yes. <laughs> and it was the very first lockdown, and we we were literally in the middle of nowhere. So I was pondering, are we going to be able to get back to bloody London? You know, and literally Rose and I just grabbed all our equipment, shoved it in the 
in the van and you know drove as fast as we could back to London but we will be recording and um writing some material very soon that's fantastic so how does because I know sort of I have had a bit of contact with Rose I mean how did how is she sort of navigating life because it often seemed a little bit like she was having one or two kind of you know like everybody you know some difficulty in you know sort of coping in this crazy world so is 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 it the case working with her has that been an, an enjoyable experience oh absolutely you know i mean again rose and i when we're on the phone we're in hysterics together you know and uh also writing with us you know it's amazing we we both shoot ideas off each other really easily um you know I, I think it's a struggle for any musician out there to to truly survive in this day and age you know like when I when I first learned to play music you know you got your advance from the label and you you know you survived and it was okay and and, and you know people that have sold millions of records now uh, that I know are struggling to get a deal or a publishing deal or anything. So I, I think in even if you have a fan base, it's still really, really hard to survive. And, uh, you know, by hook or by crook, you just have to keep holding on. And I, also I think, you know, um, that also gets harder as you get older, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, I think it does. I mean, I'm sure. But it's, it is interesting because I remember... You know, there's been a lot of musicians and decade, um, you know, bands and artists that I've loved over the years, and it's it is quite amazing seeing what happens and hearing. You know, I love what listening to interviews, and one of those people who I suppose was part of the '80s soundscape. I wasn't a huge fan, but I thought she was quite, you know, fantastic. It was I don't know. If, I don't know about fantastic. Anyway, Suzanne Vega, you know, her first album, Massive, oh, yes. second album, you know, pretty good, third album. And it's kind of interesting watching her review her interviews over those years that suddenly one day the record label drops you and you're basically back to square one. But, you know, but at that point you'd played, you know, Glastonbury on the main stage on a Saturday, sold millions, toured the world, had the limo, and suddenly you're sudden, you know, you, you're back to square one, but you've had that 10 years and all those relationships, all those musicians, all those problems, you know, and wonder where all your money's gone. And then suddenly it's like, right, I'm, I'm sort of having to keep the gig going or should I just give the gig up and just be, you know, become a teacher or, I don't know, become a nurse or something like that. So I kind of imagine it must be very hard emotionally to think, how am I going to pick myself up? Because no one's there saying, pick yourself up. People just go, look, I'm busy, mate. It's up to you. You do your thing. So how do you navigate that, you know, sometimes? <laughs> um, by sheer strength and will, I suppose, you know, um, not to sound like some army major, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but you have to be hard as nails and you, you really have to assert yourself and and above all, you know, I'm a bit stubborn. You know, I don't. I'm not I'm not a quitter. <laughs> you know, I'm in this the long haul. I'll literally have, you know, like I told you earlier, when I didn't have a passport, I still managed to smuggle myself into France. You know, I, I I'm in this for the long haul, you know, and until the day I die. Um, I remember 
talking with Sylvain of the New York Dolls when I was playing bass for him. We were, I was, again, another big fan of New York Dolls and, and to work with him was another dream come true for me. And for him, you know, he would navigate being this huge glam rock star, you know, touring and playing to sold out venues, etc. And then when he'd get home, he'd have to drive a cab. You know, some people can do that and it not fuck with their heads. For me, I've tried to do the nine to five job and do the music and I personally can't do it. You know, um, it's it's just something that I can't do. So I, I have to be, <laughs> uh, what's the word? You know, I just have to be very resilient and and have total faith and devotion in what I'm doing and total yes. belief. And without that, you know, really you're nothing, no matter what you do in this world, if you don't have total... It's like people that do jobs they absolutely hate, I found when I was very young, and this is the, one of the reasons why I knew I had to be a musician, I didn't have a choice, is because it's the only thing I'm good at doing. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm shit at everything else. So it's kind of like... I have to do this. I don't have a choice. And I'd see people that really hated um, the jobs they did. And I'd say, why do you hate the job you do? And they say, because we know we're not very good at doing it. So I'd say to them, well, you've got to do something you know you're good at doing, because if, if, if you know you're good at doing something, you'll do it to the best of your ability, you know? And that's kind of how I justify, um, you know, being in this for the long haul, because... I, I can't do anything else. <laughs> is it, well, it, it is interesting over the years doing these interviews, actually how few people do just stick with music. The mostly there is that sense of, I'm going to just have to get another job now, or I just can't do this, I'll just get it. So people like David Bowie, there was no plan B. You know, Lemmy was like, there was no plan B. It was like, you know, I can't do anything else. This is the only thing I know. And even if it's going to be in front of 20 people, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be able to learn anything because I'm quite useless, but I can do this music. So, yeah, I, you know, it does, it does make, I suppose just not knowing that you're not going to try and sort of juggle something might make it a bit easier, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's. That's, least... Yeah, that's, that's another thing as well. I'd like to say about Mark is, you know, it's really interesting. He, like, uh, we did a gig once. And it it was just um, like a payer out in, in the middle of Hastings somewhere. And I'm not joking. It was the only gig we ever played where it was very poorly attended. And we were playing and Mark was having the best time of his life. He was just like, and he turned around to me and went, that was the best gig we've ever done. And it suddenly made me realise, you know what? This this music thing you know it truly is a healing um almost like a healing mantra you know or prayer it 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 it, it works on such a primitive subconscious level that whether you're playing to you know 100 people or 90,000 people if you're getting that exchange of energy back that's all that matters you know what I mean? And and if and if you're being purified by um your output, then that's all that matters. 
and um yeah i, I learned a lot from that that time. yes that yeah, yes absolutely i did i know miles copeland who was the manager of the police and um he also ran irs records that had um rem but he said the mm. most important gig the police played was in america where they played in front of four people but one of those people was very important well they weren't hugely important but they gave him another break that sort of kept the kept the sort of show on the road so to speak and you know he does he always uses that anecdote you know with four people but one of them was a promoter and suddenly the police sort of got some traction in america and then they got a and m records and then the rest is history so you've got to always you know give it everything you've got actually that, that's <laughs> yeah that's and that's exactly what mark could say to me I remember hearing that roland s howard uh statement of when the birthday party went out to new york and they played to one person and it happened to be, I think, someone he met on the street and put on the guest list. <laughs> and then the next night they they played for 10 minutes and were thrown out by the people who own the venue. And then all of a sudden they were playing sold out gigs. You know, you can never predict how this this is going to go. With Dead Cups, we were always really lucky. It seemed it kind of um, took off quite quickly. But if I look at the music business as being this like big industry fort, you know, with huge gates, and I often felt like Dead Cuts was this sort of illegal alien trying to penetrate these gates. And as soon as we get into the village of the music industry, we'd be accepted for about a night. And then the villagers would chase us out. <laughs> yes, this is true. But it's, it's brilliant that Pete, I saw him at Glastonbury and mm. um, looking good and, and seeming yeah, yeah. very happy. And you did a tour with him last autumn, didn't you, with the band? Mm -hmm. So that yeah. was good. Did you, I mean, with you, you mentioned earlier about sort of dabbling in stuff. Has, has you put that to one side with your interest in world of the occult and bits and pieces? Did, are you are you talking about drugs? <laughs> oh, not so much the drugs, but just kind of. Did you get into your Alistair Crowley and various other things? Did that has that sort of been something that's that you've put to one side, or do you still? Yeah, you... well, I mean, I still very much believe in spiritual forces, and I do still practice ritual. The difference is, I know what I'm doing now. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean. I got to get Alistair Crowley's diaries, a copy of his diaries, and I read it and I thought, my God, this person, you know, they're incredibly sadistic um, and they're incredibly unhappy, you know, and, and it kind of, it kind of changed my perspective on the whole thing, if I'm honest. And then I got to find out from people within certain occult organisations that not everything a lot like, I guess, the Vatican or the Catholic world is that not everything is as it seems. And mm. um, I'm very grateful because I know for a fact certain rituals that we did, that Mark and I did, uh, what we asked or we got without a shadow of a doubt. Like, for example, the this is a really bizarre one. We did an occult festival. And I really wanted to do a track with Flatbush Zombies, the hip hop group I was telling you about, because I thought Dead Cuts and them would be the ultimate collaboration. But I had no idea how to go about it. You know, I didn't know anyone that um, that knew them. And 
one day we were touring with a band called Beach Slang, who are massive Census Things fans and really into dead cuts. And we were touring with them and we sat backstage and the night before we'd done a ritual and tied this wish to a rocket saying, we want to do uh, a, um, a track with Flatbridge Zombies, right? And it was this occultist friend of ours, he lit the, the rocket off and it went off and whatever, when we didn't hear anything about it. And so the guitarist of Beach Slang turns to me and he says, oh, so tell me who are some of your favorite new American bands? And I thought I'd be a smart ass because Beach Slang were very much a rock band. And I said, well, you probably haven't heard of them. They're a hip hop group, they're called Flatbridge Zombies. And he went, oh yes, I played drums on their recent album. And I said, oh, and he said, yeah, um, I tell you what, they're massive Gorillaz fans and they're also really into the census things. Uh, <laughs> would you like to meet them? They're coming here in September. Next thing I know, we're in a studio, bloody doing a song with them, you know, and what was particularly weird about that was I asked the occultist, where did you let this uh, rocket off with our wish that was on it? And he showed me the video and it was around the corner from the studio where we recorded the song. And there was no way that they could have known we were recording there. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So things is... like that did happen a lot. Um, however, very dark things happened too. Um, you know, um, we were recording, when we were recording a, a track called DK on the first album, we we came out and I asked Mark, I said, what's DK stand for? And he said, dead kid. And I was like, okay, well, nice, you know, whatever. <laughs> we looked up and um, someone had actually, as we were recording that song, someone had actually thrown themselves in front of a train at the opposite train station next to where we were recording. And they were only like 17 years old. And we later heard that um, they were a Dead Cuts fan. So, yeah, you, you know what I mean? I think the trouble is with, with this stuff is you you get some good stuff and then you get some really, really, really fucking negative stuff. And um, that's when I kind of decided that I had to purify my karma ultimately. Um, I still very much believe in the law of Abraxas, which is, you know, um, believing in the light and the dark, you know, whereas I think, Prior to that, I was purely about the dark. And uh, I definitely say that manifested itself, you know, to uh, a very potent degree. And yes. I'm glad that, yeah, that, that is something that I am no longer associated with. So that's like, because it's interesting, isn't it? Because we all sort of dabble in these kind of interesting things when we were a bit younger and in a way want to get drawn to the dark skies that feels much more sort of edgy and a bit more... It's going to be a bit more interesting anecdotally as well as you know experience and then you get a bit older and sometimes think no i could just do with a little bit more light light and love then you sound well, like in, a hippie instinctually the thing was i was always attracted to it because when i was a kid i grew up watching these old hammer horror films you know like um vincent price yeah and stuff like this you know where um, the devil rides out and, you know, uh, Dracula. And, and I I was re really into it. And I remember at eight years old, my mother was called in 
to my school because I they were worried because I kept in art class I kept drawing pictures of like demons and vampires and stuff and one of the things I do I I got so obsessed with Dracula as a kid that I went to school with a cape (laughs) and I invented this game called Vampire Kiss Chase and I'll never forget the terrible day when I was in the playground and I'm just about to sink my teeth into this girl's neck and I turn around and the headmistress is there and she's pointing at me, you know, like to say, what are you doing? And my mother was there and my mother was like, Jerome, I'm going to have to stop you watching these films if you can't, can't behave yourself, you know. So it all sort of started there and, and that's how I gradually got more and more into the occult. And then I, I started to hear that actually it wasn't just film, this actually happened in real life and you know um yeah i i kind of grew obsessed with it and i got really interested in how you know uh the second world war era you know my grandfather told me a lot of stories about the occult and how the nazis used you know runic symbols and they do rituals at the bottom of wavelsburg castle which was the head of the ss's castle you know so all this stuff is going around my mind as a child. So it was only natural that I would have some sort of affinity with the dark side, you know. But, yes. Um, we, oh, yeah. yes I know. It gets very exciting, doesn't it? When it I gets think very they, exciting, but then very scary. It gets very, and I think, I think David Bowie in the mid seventies also got through that period of slightly drifting to the right of center with a bit too much cocaine and um, it doesn't, it doesn't slightly end well, does it in that period, but luckily he gets out of it and moves on. But I guess yeah, it never you know. ends well for any, anyone involved in that, you know, uh, and, uh, and I know people that were involved in it that died very mister. Did you ever hear about Jack Parsons? No, he, he was the guy who invented rocket fuel. And um, it's hinted that he was doing a Rick. He was actually part of Crowley's, OTO Lodge in the 1950s he was out there doing rituals in Pasadena and he invented rocket fuel and one day he was doing a ritual apparently in his house and um, I mean he could have very easily just dropped one of his chemicals but he was found like in half basically um, from where his house had blown up and from where mercury fulminate had dropped everywhere but and there was apparently all this ritual equipment by the mercury and that and you know i mean it could all be a load of bullshit you know? <laughs> but um if if that's anything to go by that that's surely a good warning not to get involved you know yes well i i suppose we yeah i suppose i was in that generation people got really into all gone energy and all those kind of other bits and pieces which is a whole nother gig isn't it people love mm. to find something to get lost in a bit and then get a bit bored and then move out of it and um just have a healthy diet really and go for a swim occasionally so it does happen doesn't it we love it but um it's good so next year just on the next on the musical front then so you've got a, a project with david J. you've got mm-hmm. rose from the strawberry switchblade positive sex gang children and also your other um work with black bordello so yeah four projects also, the release, hopefully, of uh, Reveal the Love, the last Dead Cuts album. Yeah. Wow, that is that is an extraordinary sort of um, 
amount of work in the next 12 months, isn't it? It is, but it's the only way I can keep sane. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if I don't work, I, you know, I'd start to drift. And at the beginning of lockdown, actually, I was quite relieved at first. I was like, oh, great. I get to, you know, just lay down and watch movies all day. And then the second half of the lockdown, I was just like, okay, now I'm actually going mental. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I need to do something now. So um, I'm actually great. People say to me, oh, you know, how can you do that? But one of the greatest advice I ever got was from Jazz Coleman of Killing Joke. And he said to me, do as many projects as you can, because uh, and certainly now, considering how much downloads, pay, <laughs> you know, which is just extortionate. Yes, you know, it's, it's, it all, it's just disgusting, you know. Um, with that in mind, you, you don't really have a choice. You have to do as many projects as you can. And uh, as long as the music and the art's good, I'll keep doing it. I got offered a lot of jobs that, you know, were paid really good payers, but th it was music that I absolutely hated. And I knew that <laughs> just touring with these certain bands, um, would have been good and I'd have made money, but I'd have hated what I was playing on stage. Yes. You know? So, so uh, at the end of the day, I'd, I'd rather stick to, you know, what makes my heart beat and, and nourishes my soul. than um, play for a group and get a load of money and, and, you know, Die within. So look, last yeah. question. If you could have whispered something to your like 16-year-old self starts now, is there anything particular that you might have just said, oh, do this or don't do that or focus on this? Yeah, I probably would have said don't fall for that whole uh, decadent lifestyle of Rambo and, you know, the poets and all that. That, that is pretty much you know, a mythology, you know, there, there's, um, you know, they always talk about the great escape, but you often find the great escape often leads to nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, yeah, that, that's certainly something that I could have spared myself. So yeah, that, if, if that, that's what I would do, I'd go back and say, you know, you know what, Just stick to the music and don't, don't bother with all that stuff you know the trouble was you know the mythology of behind music and it's almost like a propaganda in a way uh was that if to be great you know especially in the jazz world as well you know people like chet baker and that saying oh if you want to be great you know you've got to le live this type of lifestyle you know and um i mean as you can if that was the case then you'd see lots of um very down and out people doing very well <laughs> <laughs> yes well there was so, a, there, there was a really good documentary about the bohemia bohemia and there was a kind of i can't remember who presented it but there was a bit with will self talking about it and he really trashes that kind of whole you know you do this this and this and you'll be, be, be a bohemian person and you'll be able to produce this amazing art and it's like no you won't 
no if you if you know it doesn't work like that you have to work really hard and just flouncing around isn't going to work for you so um, yeah. don't bother and so good old and will, and will self always says things in such a way doesn't he? he's like yeah okay, and, you know. and he knows if anyone knows he he's he's lived it you know but the the thing is you know i found that prior to that whole decadent thing i didn't learn anything really you know um it's kind of it's just debilitating it affects your health um it gives you more anxiety in the in the long term not less and um you're better off just doing your art and uh you know i i think i think the trouble was you know when i was younger or, or like any young person i think you you feel a bit insecure and um you look for other things to prop you up. And when I was on the road, some nights I couldn't sleep, you know, and I'd need something to help me sleep. And, you know, I'm talking about after three nights of not sleeping, yes. <laughs> you know, you, you know, it doesn't matter how young and fit you are, you're going to start to lose it. And um, also I wasn't surrounded by probably the most, uh, the greatest role models, shall we say. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, it, I I had my own choice and I did what I did. And I, I don't regret it as such, but certainly, yes, I, I, if I had the chance to go back and say, don't do that, that's, that's what I would do. Definitely. Yes. Good yeah. advice. Well, and there you go, the amazing Jerome Alexander talking about his life in music and much, much more. A massive thank you to um, for giving me the time for that. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy. <laughs> Otherwise, don't bother. And also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Um, yes, indeed. It's Spotify iTunes, Podbean, and I think various other ones. But anyway, let's not worry about that. Um, again, enjoy. Have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>